What's the Point is brought to you by the Black Tux, the best way to rent the perfect suit or tux for a wedding or special event right online. Visit theblacktux.com slash point and they'll set you up. That's theblacktux.com slash point. One of the most fascinating things to me is actually that, you know, even though LaCour faked all these data, he really got us thinking about this. And so in a way, by <laughs> by creating this fraud, he actually moved science forward, which is kind of remarkable. It's failing upward. That's yeah. right. That's right. Forward by failure is one of my favorite mantras. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. Today, the latest developments in a story that we've mentioned a few times on this podcast and a story that has all sorts of lessons for how we use data and conduct studies and connect it to the way we live our lives. Last year, there was a pretty big scandal when a high-profile study about whether people can be persuaded to change what they believe about LGBT rights was found to be largely fabricated. This week, the team that uncovered that fraud is releasing the results of their own study, where they used similar research methods to investigate a similar approach to persuasion. The new study found results that kind of matched with the fabricated study, the basic idea being that beliefs can change. But that's where the similarities end. That's coming up in a minute. But first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Can I tell you a number? Uh, yeah. Good. Thank you for answering that way. Uh, so the number is 45.3%, which this is totally fascinating to me. A recent study showed that in 2013, 45.3% of grades at the college level were A's. And if you compare that to like 1940, 14.9% of grades were A's. Almost half of grades are A's in college these days. Oh, well, I guess obviously everybody's just getting a lot smarter because, you know, things are going really well. <laughs> but I mean, do you think there's grade inflation? Um, yeah, I think that there there is uh, grade inflation. I think stats are probably like, you know, used to bolster prestige of schools as much as. So you you think that it's schools want schools don't want to look like they have dumb students, so they're giving people lots of A's. That's possible. Okay, Farai Shadea is here in the studio to talk a little bit more about this grade inflation. And we have some more stats related to this. I know you've been doing some research, but Farai, welcome back to uh, What's the Point? Thanks, Jody. I guess the basic question is, like, is grade inflation actually a thing? Oh, it's a thing. I mean, as someone who's a professor as well as an author, it's a thing. And I happened to find some work by author Stuart Roychaster, who wrote an op-ed for The Washington Post in 2003 talking about grade inflation. And ever since then, he's created this handy website, gradeinflation.com. <laughs> it must and have been a hard URL to get. Exactly. And he's, he's kept updating it. And I think this really gets to the core of it. He breaks it down into um, a segment called Student as Consumer Era. So from the mid-80s until the present, students have been viewed, rightly so in some ways, as consumers of education. And he theorizes that this idea that universities are shopping for students means that you have to please your customer. And if you start uh, thinking of students as customers... Customers and, always write. The and, customer yeah, always and, wrote a and, great paper. Exactly. And so that's why we've reached a point where the grade point average nationally is often around an A-minus and the average grade at Harvard is an A. 
But what is the effect of this? Because there is part of me that says, you know, if we want to think of college as a place for engaging in ideas and uh, meeting other people and possibly falling in love or whatever, like the actual grade you get on a sheet of paper maybe doesn't matter. It's about the experience and you measure that in other ways. I mean, I think that really depends on what the end game is. So for people who are applying to graduate school, being graded is really important. I mean, it's important for people who are evaluating former undergraduates or current undergraduates applying for graduate school to know whether they applied themselves and in what disciplines. So I think that for most jobs, a grade may not be that important, but for things like furthering your education and taking it to the graduate level, which admittedly a small minority of people do, it actually is important to have accurate grades and to know what people are doing. And I also wonder from your perspective as a professor who's someone who's taught, you know, I I imagine there's like pressure on professors to maybe not be that one hard-ass professor who's giving grades as we would have in the 1940s or whatever, because you're an outlier. You know, it's kind of like Uber. You know, it's like that whole concept of five for five, five, you know, (laughs) and so students rate their professors. It's not just that you are grading your students, your students rate you. And that can affect if you're someone who's going for tenure, that can affect whether or not you get tenure. And these student evaluations are looked at very critically. But but also some of it sometimes has to do with institutional culture. So I think that the question has to be, what is the university's policy? First of all, some schools, very few of them, but some schools don't give grades at all. And so that's one solution. But a better solution would be to really, I think, from the time students are applying to a college, put in the admissions brochure that not everyone is going to get an A in every class. This is not the environment that we foster, but we value people who work hard and take challenging classes. I think it can't really be a hot switch in the middle of someone's college career, you have to go into it saying, I value this school. I know that I might not get the easy A, but this is why I'm going to this school. And you have to start a dialogue before people even get to campus. All right. Farai Shadea, thank you very much. And now a conversation about the study released just this week that advances research around interaction and persuasion. It's worth quickly recapping some of the names involved. You may know the name Michael LaCour. He was the researcher who came out with that high-profile study showing that views on LGBT rights can change with door-to-door canvassing, and he's the one who likely fabricated a lot of his findings. Then there's the researchers who uncovered those findings, and that was led by David Bruckman. And that's the team that came out with new research this week. Anyway, let's uh, get right into the conversation. Here we go. We have, I I think it's safe to say, a truly all-star group of science and data writers and thinkers who luckily all belong to us here at 538. So I'm going to go around. This is three guests now, but Carl Bialik is here in the studio with me. Hi, Hi, And Christy Ashwanden, who you've heard on this show, uh, as well as Carl. Hi, Christy. Hi, Jody. And making her What's the Point debut. And really, I guess what, you're, you're one week into, two weeks into your stint at, uh, at 538, but Maggie Kurth Baker is here as well. Hi, Maggie. Hi. Um, so I am eager to kind of just listen to you guys trade notes and talk about this this moment. But I was hoping that, uh, Carl, you could start. This is this story, this liqueur story and the this scandal, if we want to call it that, is something that we have touched upon a number of times on the show. But can you just kind of recap how we got to this moment for listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the story? This really goes back, and I will be brief, but I'm going to go back to 2008. And that's when California 
passed a proposition uh, against gay marriage. And canvassers who were in favor of gay marriage were trying to decide how can we how can we change opinion? How can we make it so that if we can vote on this again, we can reverse this decision? And they honed techniques through trial and error, but without really scientifically studying them, uh, that they found seemed to be effective in talking to people uh, who were opposed to gay marriage and getting some of them to change their views. And they felt like they wanted some scientific verification. They wanted to know that this really worked. And this wasn't just because at the end of a conversation with a nice person at your door, you'll tend to say something that will make them happy. So they found political scientists who were excited to test this approach and to see if it actually lasted. If months, maybe even a year after the conversation, if this change in opinion persisted after the person was gone from the door, after you go go on with your, with your own life. And what they found was an enormous effect if the canvasser was gay. And if the canvasser was straight but made similar arguments, it seemed to dissipate. And this was a very exciting for political activists. Uh, it was published in Science, a very reputable and uh, mass scientific publication, and then was picked up widely by the media, including a very compelling episode of This American Life. And then some other researchers who tried to extend the technique and test it in other settings started finding some suspicious aspects to the study. And they dug deeper and they talked to one of the authors who had really led the data collection. And eventually they determined that almost certainly the survey that was following up with these people who had been approached by canvassers had never been done, that it seemed like the survey data was just fabricated. And so the canvassers really had gone out and talked to people and spent tens of thousands of hours training and prepping and knocking on doors when no one was home and having these conversations, but no one had followed up. So we were left in this funny place where everyone was retracting the original study, including science and also the publications that followed up on it. And this was last year that this kind this of was all last May, right? so yeah. a little a little less than a year ago. And the very quick take on it was, oh, it turns out this really exciting finding isn't true. But then you had these canvassers who said, well, we really think we do have a good technique here, but we just missed out on this opportunity to verify it. And the authors of the paper that debunked the finding were themselves interested in this finding and in extending it. That's how they got into it in the first place. So here we are almost a year later, and those same authors have, in fact, tested whether this works and this time really doing a survey instead of fabricating the results. And so, Maggie, you know, I, w I want you to jump in here, but I just I just want to say we, we awarded the group that had dug into this study. We gave them a data award at the end of last year. And, I, you know, it's just so impressive to see them have followed up last May in this way. And now to even go, I guess, the next step and not just kind of debunk, but then try and reprove or whatever, you know, term we want to use. So what so what is the news now and where do we stand now? And wh why are we all gathered here talking in this moment? Well, so what was really interesting about this when I was talking to David Brookman, who is a professor of poli sci at uh, UC Berkeley, he's uh, the one that had did the debunking of that previous paper. And he said that they actually stumbled into the debunking because they were already working on doing field research on this door-to-door -door canvassing technique. So they were already working on their research when they ran into this and ended up, because of the falsification of liqueur, having to come up with their own methodology. And their own methodology 
for this research has turned out to be way cheaper than what was previously being done. Um, so the really exciting thing here is that Bruckman told me that five years ago, doing this kind of field research would have cost something like $2 million. And LaCour, quote unquote, did it for a million. Um, <laughs> He actually did it like in a coffee shop. For, on yeah, exactly. But you know, the, you know, he 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 got his false results for a million dollars, and they have now got a methodology that would allow them to do this study for about twenty-five grand. Wow! And what did they find? So they found that having these conversations with canvassers actually did have an effect and did reduce bias against trans people. In this case, we're talking about acceptance of trans people in your community, trans men, trans women. And that was different than what LaCour found, though. So LaCour had gone into his research, and this is, I had talked to David Fleischer, who is the director of the Gay and Lesbian Center of LA, who did the canvassing. And he said that LaCour came to them already with this idea that exposure to this minority group was going to be the thing that changed people's minds. And that LaCour came to them and said, you know, do you think this is what's going on? And Fleischer said, no, I don't really think that's what's going on. But then that was what LaCour found. And so he was willing to go along with it. But then now that we go back and do this study for real, turns out LaCour was wrong. And it wasn't just exposure to the minority. It seems to be something more like perspective taking. This idea that you can put yourself into somebody else's shoes and think a little bit differently about the world because you are thinking about the world more from their perspective than your own. But wasn't uh, that the kind of lesson to begin with in, in the liqueur before people found out that it was fraudulent, that you know, a, a personal connection and and a sort of an increase in empathy was the was the main key. Sort of, but there's a really important difference between an impersonal connection in terms of like, hey, I've never met a gay person before, and here's this gay person, and I think they're really great, and now I think gay people are great, and somebody coming to you and talking about, hey, remember a time that you felt judged. And you thinking, oh, yeah, no, I really didn't like being judged at all. Man, junior high was terrible. Oh, I don't want anyone to feel that way. I guess I'll change the way that I'm approaching these people who are being judged now. Those are two really, really different ways of getting to empathy. And they matter in the course of canvassing because in the core's idea, you have to have all these gay people going out and introducing themselves to strangers and maybe putting themselves in dangerous positions. And also you have to have a bunch of them. So that becomes a real big problem when you're talking about something like trans, where there's just not a ton of trans people to go around. And in this case, it works just as well if you have a straight person, if you have a cis person to go out and say, hey, how about that time you felt judged? Maybe you should think differently about trans people. It doesn't have to be a trans person you're being introduced to. It just has to be you identifying with the situation that 
the trans person is in. I think there's a really important idea here that's worth thinking about a little bit. And that is, there's quite a bit of research actually showing that the way that people make decisions about what to believe or the, the way that they form their beliefs about things is not necessarily through data or through facts. So, you know, if you want to persuade someone that, um, you know, on gay marriage or, or transgender rights, for instance, you know, just giving them facts is not going to work, that you really need to connect with them and some sort of emotional way. And, um, you know, I think that one way to interpret this finding is that these canvassers were really connecting to people on an emotional level. And so they weren't just the thing that's different from just as Maggie was saying, here's a gay person who's really nice. So maybe gay people are okay. And it's okay to, you know, give them rights or whatever. This was different. So here they were saying, we want to imagine that you are that person. And so it's really connecting to the person's beliefs about themselves, their own emotional experiences. And I think that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons why that might be a more effective method. back up a little bit and talk about what this canvassing technique is. Um, mm-hmm. cause I had come away when I guess I remember hearing all these stories about this back in the spring and thinking that what had been done was that people had kind of gone around and been like, let me tell you about my life. But that wasn't actually how the technique works. You know, imagine if your doorbell rings and the guy with the clipboard on the other side is Socrates. You know, it's this Socratic dialogue that they kind of set up where the canvasser comes in and it's not even really about telling people They're not even really being upfront about what side they're canvassing for when they do this. It's more like, hey, we want to talk to you about this issue. Let me ask you some questions. And then based on what question, what your answers are, then they ask more questions and then you answer and they ask more questions. And eventually they kind of get you around to this talking to them about a time that you felt judged and how that made you feel. And that's when they kind of start putting in that stuff about, oh, so how might that relate to the life of a trans person in America today? You know, how, what do you think that feels like for them when they have to choose what bathroom to use and people are going to judge them either way, depending on wherever they go? And that's a really interesting way of getting empathy. Like Christy said, it puts you in that place kind of before you have a chance to feel defensive about it. And Brookman actually likened it to cognitive behavioral therapy and said it's kind of a close cousin to that psychology treatment that we use. But on your doorstep. But on your doorstep. With with a stranger. With a stranger, yeah. Free and unsolicited. Yeah. Uh, I think one thing that's really exciting here, I mean, we're talking about the method that did seem to be effective in this new study. But as you mentioned, Maggie, if their sort of meta method really works and really can work for 25,000, they could do follow-up studies and find that maybe a slight change in that approach produces an even bigger effect or that tuning the approach, depending on the age of the person, could have a different effect, uh, that it depends on the issue. I mean, that's another thing that uh, they looked at, right? They looked at another issue. And, 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 you know, on the flip side, also, maybe that people who are on the other side of this issue or other issues than the canvassers they worked with might 
be able to test their own approaches. Yeah. Uh, the issue thing was really interesting, too, because both this team and LaCour did a follow-up study on abortion rights using the same technique to kind of try to get people to change their mind and be in favor of more open access to abortion. And LaCour found, quote-unquote, an effect that, again, was tied to you meeting a woman that had had an abortion because that met his pre-stated hypothesis, basically. In this case, they didn't get an effect. They had a null effect. It didn't work. Uh, It worked for trans issues, but it didn't work for abortion. And there are a lot of reasons why that could be the case. Um, One possibility is that Fleischer thinks it's because abortion is something that people are less comfortable speaking candidly about than times when they felt judged. And it could also be that there's, you know, the times when I felt judged is kind of a, a less controversial proxy for this much more controversial issue about trans rights. And there's not really a good proxy for abortion the same way. Like, there's not a thing that I can easily get myself in the shoes of a woman who's had an abortion that isn't abortion. You know, it's not as easily connectable. The other important issue here, and again, these are hypotheses, like these are like stories we're telling to explain the data. We don't know whether they're true. But the other issue is that abortion is something that people have been messaged on for a long time. You know, no one is hearing about abortion for the first time, you know, having this canvasser come to their door. I mean, that's probably not entirely true of the transgender issues either, but it's something that's kind of newer as in terms of being something that's in the public sphere that's being talked about. So the sides aren't sort of as entrenched as they are in abortion. It's probably not so much a situation where it's become sort of badges of identity for which group you belong to, you haven't already made up your mind. I mean, it's very likely that some of the people um, that interacted with the canvassers hadn't given a lot of thought to transgender rights, you know, so it may be a new issue. So, and that's another important, important thing here. Like, so it may be, I mean, we know that once you've changed, once you've made up your mind, it's harder to change that. And so it, some of this may be that this is a very fluid issue. It's something that's um, sort of new in terms of being something that's really become political and into the public arena. And so it may just be that this is really an opportune time to do this. And it may be that, you know, in two years from now, uh, this method would be less effective. It's also worth noting that this is the abortion study is also a really good example of why we need this kind of independent verification of canvassing, because the canvassers thought it was working when they did it. Berkman told me that they would come back and be like, yeah, we've changed all these people's minds. Everything's going great. And then they would send out the survey people and the same people that told the canvassers that they changed their minds were like, no. We'll get back to the conversation in a minute. But first, What's the Point is brought to you by The Black Tux, which lets you rent a tuxedo or a suit for a special event right online. Perhaps you're accepting a Nobel Prize in science for doing research around the effects of personal interaction and persuasion. You'll probably want to wear a tux. But more realistically, one of the main ways that people use the black tux is for weddings. If you've ever been in a wedding party where you've had to coordinate tuxedos or suits, it can be a real hassle. 
And this is where the Black Tux comes in and makes everything not a hassle. You visit theblacktux.com where you can select from full outfits that are already there for you or you can build your own piece by piece. And I've done this part. It's really easy. You enter your measurements, some information about what kind of fit you like. There's all sorts of options and they also have people who can help consult on finding the perfect fit. Once you fill out your information, your suit will arrive seven days or more before your event. Once the event is over, you put the suit back in the box and send it back to the Black Tux. Shipping is free both ways. So it's early spring. There's a decent chance you have some weddings or other big events already on the calendar. Maybe your fridge looks like mine with like half a dozen save the date cards already piled up under one flimsy fridge magnet. It can be a little stressful, but don't let finding the perfect suit be the thing that stresses you out. Visit theblacktux.com slash point and check it out. It's super easy. Just go to theblacktux.com slash point so that they know this podcast sent you. Okay, back to the conversation. Help me kind of take a step back and just get a sense of what we should do in terms of assessing liqueur at this moment uh, with these with this new information. Because I, I know what you're saying with regards to the fact that like the, the minutiae of the methodology really matters, the different issues are received in different ways. But to, let's say, 95% of people who encountered liqueur's work, the basic lesson was personal connection leads to an increase in empathy and it is a good way to get someone to understand an issue and potentially change their mind around a tricky issue. Is that basic lesson still there, even though we know that liqueur was... was, was I think it's you know, more nuanced than that, actually. Um, I think that one of the lessons here is that methods really matter. They matter a lot, and we have to be careful. Um, one of the things here is that this new study is really exciting. I mean, they found a very large effect. It's something that lasts. That's exciting. But what we don't know um, is how generalizable it is. I mean, we know that it didn't work for abortion, right? And so what we don't know is, you know, how particular is it to this situation? And so we need to be careful, I think, about saying, well, okay, so it's this thing or that thing that's working. You know, it may just be that this is an issue that is, you know, at a, a point in its its history in the public discourse that people are sort of open to being persuaded, you know, so that may be part of it. We, we don't know. And so I think it's really important that we really are careful to not overinterpret the results. And I think that to their credit, I think that the authors have been very careful that way. Um, one thing that's really exciting about this study is that they have been extremely transparent in everything that they're doing. In fact, you know, they're, they're sharing their code. They have created this whole document uh, that they're sharing and making open source for other researchers to take this methodology and go run with it, do their own studies. Um, they've pointed out potential pitfalls, you know, things that could be improved and things like that. One of the most fascinating things to me is actually that, you know, even though LaCour faked all these data, he really got us thinking about this. And so in a way, by, <laughs> by creating this fraud, he actually moved science forward, which is kind of remarkable. It's failing upward. That's yeah. right. That's right. Forward <laughs> yeah, by I, failure I, is one of my favorite mantras. I, I think what, what, what's striking to me about this is how LaCour maybe it, who knows he really hasn't talked much about about this or even acknowledged that he fabricated but it's possible that he did intend to do this work realized how difficult it was and in fact as there there's an accompanying editorial i think in science about this 
very few people had tested this specifically in a real world setting. There had been like laboratory and classroom settings, but very few people had had tested. So it would be hard to get at the nuance you're talking about, Christy, of like which issues work, which methods work, which target populations work. And so he created this sort of fake version of what might have been true and what the canvassers he spoke to really believed was true. It got all this attention. Then the retraction got all this attention. And then the field could have gone in two directions. They could have said, well, the one time we've really found this really strong effect, it wasn't even true. This just feels messy and sort of fraught. Let's let's move on to other areas or let's stick with the laboratory settings. And I think in large part because the researchers who debunked him really believed in the idea of testing this and knowing if it were true and, and when it were true and getting at uh, the more the more nitty gritty of how to sort of change people's minds with empathy, they did move it forward. It, and that wasn't inevitable. I mean, we there were some scientists mm-hmm. who were saying, maybe we should just drop this. Maybe the lesson here is that you'll only get this big of an effect if you if you make it up. So I don't think it was inevitable that we got here, but it is good news that we got here and fairly quickly. I mean, in less than a year, another science paper after the first one was retracted. Yeah, I find that really remarkable. And the other thing that I think is worth thinking about here is that this is really a situation of people on the ground. I mean, you had these people that were out there canvassing, you know, they weren't scientists, they weren't trying to study this scientifically. I mean, they wanted to sort of prove or or know for sure whether it was working, but it was really um, sort of an interesting situation where information was flowing from people who are already practitioners down on the ground, that that information was flowing upward to academia, you know, and the, the researchers. And so I think that there's a lesson there, too, that, you know, it doesn't always have to be that, you know, scientists and their labs or, you know, their universities are coming up with these ideas and these theories and then going the other way. And that seems like sort of an interesting situation here and potential lesson that, you know, maybe in some instances, you know, researchers in social science should spend more time I'm, you know, talking to people that are practitioners on the ground. And I don't want to say that they're not doing that. I I don't think that that's the case. But there was something said in the commentary that accompanied the paper, you know, to that effect that really this is, you know, it's important to recognize that there is sort of important knowledge that those practitioners have that could be incorporated more into research. I kept thinking as I was doing this reporting about the sociology of science has this phrase of like other ways of knowing that often gets sort of eye rolled at by science-minded people. But this is a really good example of that, that everybody is an expert in something and their expertise comes from a different place other than science. It comes from practicing something over and over and over and over. And that expertise can lead you to questions that science can test and that that's a valuable thing. And you kind of have to make that collaboration or you're going to miss out on really interesting ideas that you know science may not come up with on its own. I think of this I think this phrase has been said on this podcast before so I'm okay saying it that if you think of it in a sort of Bayesian way that you might have a prior belief about whether this method works mm-hmm. and then as new information comes in you'll update it. The canvassers had this prior belief based on their experience that this seemed to work, and they wanted to know that that was true and also know more details, like when it was true and how. And after the liqueur finding was outed as not being real, I think a lot of people who didn't really have a prior belief about this or or had the belief that this probably wasn't real kind of went back to that. But the canvassers felt like we're just back where we were when we contacted liqueur and we're back where we think it's real, but we want to know more information. And so the liqueur collaboration obviously didn't work out, but 
in general, it's a really cool model of the practitioners collaborating with the scientists and, and testing it. And, you know, they said, we, we just want to do this study. And so that one didn't work. We're going to do it again. And then they did. And here we are. Yeah. I, I, you know, th- this has been said on this podcast before, too, but it feels like this is another example of, you know, if a lesson is too strong in one direction or the other, you should be pretty skeptical of it. And, and mostly we're just kind of working within fairly narrow margins and trying to sort of inch, inch along. But to that, and as we start to wrap, Christy, you and I have talked a lot about kind of science journalism and how we tend to not have very new conversations around moments like this. So what is your sense of this moment and whether it will get much attention? I know, you know, at 538, we're writing two pieces and doing a podcast around it. But, you know, what are the what are the headlines? What are the potential? You know, could we go back to having a productive conversation around this or what could go wrong or will this get ignored? Yeah, I don't think it will get ignored. I mean, it's an exciting finding and it's something that has a lot of lessons here. I think, you know, it's in some ways, a really good example of how the scientific process works. And again, I don't think usually, and I'd like to, to think that most of the time fraud is not part of the scientific process. And, you know, it's kind of interesting here that it did get people thinking. Um, but I think that the lessons here are just about, you know, being careful about how we interpret things and checking one's work. I mean, that's, it's sort of this trust, but verify. And here again, I think that these results are really exciting. The researchers have been very careful to show their work. They pre-registered most of their analysis plans. That's really important. So it's, you know, they're announcing their intentions ahead of time so that they're not just getting their data and then playing with it until they find the results that they want. Um, yeah, but they are also very transparent with it. So they're, they're, you know, making it available so that other researchers can go into that data set and, and play around and, you know, do the analysis for themselves. And that's a really important step forward, I think. So yeah, I think it's an example of rigorous work and it's careful work. And, you know, here again, I think the, the challenge is to make sure that we don't fall into that same trap of saying, all right, and so now we know the answer. We understand everything about how the world works. You know, uh, science is very good at answering the very specific question that you asked it in a study. You know, in this case, it's, you know, can this group of canvassers um, targeting this particular population of voters, you know, move their opinions. But to what extent that's generalizable, we have to be careful about making claims about that. Um, but it looks exciting. And I think that it's definitely justified to say that this is a really exciting result and will, you know, provide a lot of food for thought. Carl? Yeah, I, I think the researchers here also had really good timing in the issue they were looking at. I think this will get a lot of attention now specifically because there are bills recently passed or, or proposed on restroom access and trans rights. And maybe a political scientist hadn't really heard about it until this year, but the researchers already worked on it and are ready now to publish. And there are canvassers now and activists who probably will take these results and, and use them much in the same way as activists did after LaCour's results came out. Maggie, any final thoughts? One of the things I'm really interested in right now is how applicable these results would be to somebody on the other side of that issue. Like whether some organization like the National Organization for Marriage or some of these groups trying to pass these anti-trans bathroom bills could take this research and get people to empathize in the other direction. Fleischer didn't think so. Brockman thought it was up in the air. It's, I, I think it's a really interesting question, and it's one that science doesn't look at very often because the way that IRBs work, it's sort of... <laughs> IRB is... IRB is the, uh, the board, board at your at your university, that the ethics board, basically, that you right. know, tells you whether you can do something. And... Uh, instilling an anti-trans 
point of view in people is generally considered wrong by the IRB. Uh, so these studies, when they're done, tend to be in, you know, in favor of supporting trans people, of supporting gay people, of supporting all these different broadenings of rights. But the people on the other side don't think that they themselves are evil. You know, like they're not sitting there twiddling their fingers and twiddling their mustaches and cackling to themselves. They're, they think they're fighting for the side of good, too. And they think they have something to empathize with. So it seems like it could be used the other way, but the research isn't being done on that. And I'm really curious about that now. All right, Maggie and Christy and Carl, thank you very much for joining us. This was this was really great. And it's nice to sort of like jump on this breaking story. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're making news on what's the point. Yeah. Thanks, Jody. Thanks for having us, Jody. Again, you can read much more of our coverage of this story, which is just breaking this week, on the website, 538.com. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel, and we have studio help from Tony Chow. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter. It's Jody with a Y. Avergan, you'll have to figure out on your own. Or you can email me podcasts at 538.com. Keep the comments and ideas coming for the show. We're always looking for new things to discuss on What's the Point? One of the things that is ongoing and that a lot of you have been wonderful about taking part in is our project with Dear Data. You've been sending me postcards every day. I show up and there's about a dozen new postcards on my desk with people having drawn data visualizations showing their podcast listening. It's really amazing and inspiring. But those of you wondering when we're going to follow up, I'm going to give it a few more weeks to make sure they all come in. We're going to take a look, but I promise they're coming in. Others have done it, and it's really fantastic. So stay tuned for the next step in that project. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. You can download a version of the theme he wrote on our website. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. Thank you, everyone who has left ratings and reviews recently. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. <laughs>